Exklusive Black Friday Angebote bei Farnell. Rabatte, Sonderangebote und mehr. Melden Sie sich gleich an auf farnell.com. This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk. It is that time, it is that time. Uh, an opportunity for an interaction with the naked scientist. Uh, it's good to have you back, Chris. Good to talk to you. Good, good to be back. I have a couple of uh, people on the line already, so we're going to dive straight in. Ronnie, out in Mowbray, you have a question. Go ahead. My, my question is, why are most people right-handed? And is this a phenomenon that we also see in other animals? Hi, Ronnie. The answer is that most people, about 90% of the population, are consistently right-handed. This is not a new phenomenon. And the best data we have on this handedness in humans goes back to our caveman relatives. There was a study from the University of Montpellier in France. It was about 25 years ago now. And what they did was to look at the hand paintings. People used to make cave art hand paintings where they would hold a hand against the cave wall, hold a blowpipe in the other hand and then spray paint at their hand on the wall and, of course, make a handprint because where the hand wasn't, you would then get paint on the wall of the cave. And if you ask children, as this study did, to do the same thing, and we know that about 90% of children are going to be right-handed if they're in school, then you look at the ratio of right and left-hand prints that they produce on bits of paper. You find the same ratio as you find on the walls of caves in terms of right and left hands. And the interpretation is that our caveman ancestors probably had similar handedness to that 90% dominance that we see today. Now, we don't know exactly why one particular hand should become dominant and consistently so in humans. But what we do know is that if your right hand is dominant, because the left side of your brain controls the right side of your body, then this means that the left hemisphere of your brain must be the dominant hemisphere 90% of the time. We also know that language function resides in the left hemisphere in the vast majority of people. Not everybody, and there are some people who might have had a problem when they were growing up and their brain may have had to rewire itself, but in the vast majority of cases, you see language and handedness and therefore cerebral dominance co-localizing. In other words, where language is is where handedness is, and if that's on the left side of the brain, that means the opposite side of the body is your dominant side because the brain crosses over and controls the other side of the body. In animals, we don't see the same consistent, strong handedness really we see animals that are handed and we see animals that prefer to use one paw or one fin or hand but we see equal numbers of some animals using one hand and the other half of the population using the other hand so there isn't the same really strong dichotomy for the vast majority there are some animals that that do have this but they don't have language of course so there might be something else going on in those particular animals but why this has happened, why we have this asymmetry, why we favour the side that we do and why we favour it almost 100% of the time, we just don't know. We also don't know why 10% of people are left-handed. We think there's some kind of familial link, but when people have looked for the genetics that underpins it with very powerful what we call genome-wide association studies, which can link up bits of your genetic material with particular outcomes, they couldn't find any particular genetic locus or point in the DNA that makes people become left-handed. But we do know it does appear to run in families. So at the moment, the jury's out as to why this happens and what causes this to happen. But we know that it absolutely does.
And I hope that answers your question, Ronnie. I'm sure it does. Denise, out in table view, go ahead for The Naked Scientist. Thank you, Terence. Um, hi, Dr. Chris. Could you please explain the process of genetically modified foods to me and are they harmful to the human body? Morning. Yes, sure. Well, when we genetically modify anything, what we're doing is taking a piece of genetic material from one source and inserting it into another thing or entity. The reason this works is that all life on Earth comes from a common ancestor. Life started, we think, and we have evidence to support this, about four billion years ago, when the Earth was only about half a billion years old. So life got started here pretty fast. That initial life was very primitive. It was single-celled organisms, we think, a bit like bacteria. And because they evolved over the subsequent about three and a half billion years until about 500 million years ago into progressively more complicated single-celled creatures and then ultimately what we call metazoal life, where cells got together and formed multicellular organisms, because those single cells that were bacteria that were the first life on Earth ultimately gave rise to the complicated life on Earth, the genetic program that runs in those bacteria is, in, is inherited over time into all of the different tree of life components, with the result that the same genetic code is running, understood and interpreted by any organism on Earth. So you can take a piece of DNA from a jellyfish that makes it glow green, that's the classic example, and you can put that into a mouse and it will make a mouse that glows green. And that experiment has been done because the genetic program is identical and plants are part of that same tree of life, therefore they are using the same identical genetic code that we use in our cells, that mice use in their cells, bacteria use in their cells. With, with a few minor tweaks, you can take a gene from anything, put it into anything else, and it will be expressed under the right circumstances. So the way in which we do this for food is we say, well, this particular crop, let's say, is vulnerable to this particular herbivory or pest. So if we take a, a gene that gives a particular species a particular trait, it might be to produce something that deters that herbivore, it might be a particular toxin that's poisonous to a particular group of animals that are a threat. If we take the gene that the other thing uses to make that, and there are a couple of ways of doing this, but one of them and, and that works very well is you put it into a bacterium called Tumefaciens bacterium. And the Tumefaciens bacteria have machinery in them that enables them to add genetic code to other things you can then add the bacteria to the thing you want to genetically modify and it will insert your piece of dna that you want inserted into the genetic code of the thing that you want to genetically modify the thing that you want to genetically modify will then have that code in its cells and when its cells copy themselves and make new plants they will copy that new piece of genetic information in there and under the right circumstances you can make that thing you've inserted be switched on and be expressed and be made in the plant tissues and then you've got a plant that makes this additional chemical which has the ability to fend off predator make that plant resistant to a certain chemical so you can use far less pesticides or whatever because um, it converts it into something that's more potent in that plant or something that enables you to poison all the weeds with a simple chemical but not this plant so there's a range of ways in which this can be used. You can also do it rather than just poisoning things. You can do it to enrich the nutritional value of things. For instance, you can add genes that make the plant add certain micronutrients to its f f tissues, 
researchers are doing this at the moment in the UK with tomatoes. They're making tomatoes that make massive doses of vitamin D, for example. So eating one tomato is your daily vitamin D dose. And this is, this is a big problem in countries that don't have enough sunshine and don't eat enough vitamin D-rich foods in the first place. So that is how you go about doing it. Is it risky? Well, as long as you know what you've done, where you've put the genetic material, and you do the experiments to properly profile the plant and check that you haven't introduced changes elsewhere in the genetic code and check that you haven't in some way altered the biochemistry of the plant so that when it's doing the thing you've made it do, it's not doing something else that it shouldn't be doing. And in today's day and age, we can do that. We have got various clever biochemical techniques now that mean you can look at every single molecule in a plant in terms of the, the numbers of different molecules and their relative levels, and you can check these kinds of things, and you can also read through all the letters in the genetic code and make sure that you have made what you think you have made. That's no replacement for proper checks and balances, further field tests, and so on, but we are pretty comfortable now that this can be done and can be done safely, but the question is, of course, always... Do we want to do that? And why do we want to do that? Is there something else we could do that means we don't have to do that instead? Thank you, Denise. Table view for your question. Now, there's a, a voice note in. Let's take a listen. This is Gisela from Durbanville. I want to know why do birds and antelope walk with the neck forward first? I mean, the birds have got two legs. I can understand that possibly, but an antelope also has has four legs. Yet zebras don't walk like that with a head forward. But antelopes always throw their heads forward before they walk, and the same as birds. Why do they do that? Uh, I I don't know about all animals, but what I can speculate is what connects. The birds that you mention, like a pigeon, if you watch a pigeon strutting around on a pavement, it will do this head-bobbing walk where it shoves its head forward, locks its head in position, and then it moves its body underneath its locked head and it moves forward in a series of bobbing movements. Your, your antelope example is them doing a similar sort of thing. These animals have a horizontal pupil and eyes on the sides of their heads. And the reason they probably do this is because if you've got eyes on the sides of your head and a horizontal pupil, you've got a very big field of view of the horizon. And if you moved forward in a fluid, streamlined way, you would see the world flowing past yourself in a very confusing way, continuously. And it would be easy to miss predators. Whereas if you put your head forward, lock your head, then you have a clear view of the world and then you move your body, keeping your head still, you maintain better vision and you have a better, clearer view of the horizon and therefore any incoming predators than if you were to do the other movement, which is just to walk forward continuously. So I would speculate, although I don't know, and if there are any zoologists who know better, that that would be the most likely reason why these animals would do this and why birds might do it the same as some of these other four-legged animals. Naked scientist, what happened with the stem cells for macular degeneration? And it helped three people see again. Uh, thank you, says Denise. Hello, Denise. The answer is people are doing research at the moment to try to repair the retina. When you have diseases like macular degeneration, the macula is the most sensitive part of your retina, which is the light-sensitive sheet at the back of the eye. And this is very common. A high fraction of people, particularly with an ageing population, where more people are living into older age, this means that more people are living into diseases of old age. 
things that previously they wouldn't have lived long enough to get are now becoming much more commonplace. Dementia is among that number, but so are chronic disabling diseases like macular degeneration. And in these diseases, which occur for a number of different reasons, you lose parts of the back of the retina, which are the critical wiring that converts the light that comes into your eye into neurological signals that the brain can understand and turn into visual pictures. If you lose cells you therefore cannot produce pictures in your brain. So the idea is if we can put back the cells that are being lost, then we can get them to rewire themselves and we can get them to restore the light sensitivity of that part of the eye. One way to do this is to build prosthetic devices and there are various projects now going on with implants in people's eyes which are a light-sensitive piece of engineering, a bit like the camera in your phone, which can then turn the picture that falls on it into a series of electrical impulses that activate the optic nerve directly and enable people to develop rudimentary, relatively low acuity, but vision nonetheless. But another way of doing this is to say, well, can we put the cells back? And so people are trying to make repair patches for the retina. And there are studies now where people are making implant tissues that can go into the back of the eye, they restore primitive or unspecialised cells that can then go into the gaps in the retina that have been created by the loss of the healthy, the loss of the formerly healthy tissue. And those gaps are then repopulated by these stem cells that respond to local cues or signals from the environment. And that causes the unspecialised cells to turn into the right sorts of cells to rewire the retina. And this includes the cells that process signals going through the retina, as well as the light-sensitive cells themselves in the retina, and a special layer at the back of the retina called the retinal pigment epithelium, which is there to nourish and clean up the retina, pick up all the debris, and soak up stray light that misses the retina. This is really hard to do. It's really early days, but it does look really promising. There are initial studies on people that do look like this may be, in the future, one way to do this. Let's get a mic in the CBD. Mike, go ahead. Hi, uh, Dr. Smith. I'm very curious to know why there is such extreme resistance against us using the CRISPR-Cas9 technology for gene editing. The reason for this, Mike, is that with any new technology, it's very easy to go all guns blazing into things, and then you discover after it's too late that you've crossed a bridge that you can't recover, you can't go back. And what people don't want to do is to burn their bridges, destroy the reputation, undermine public trust, and do something that could have long-term consequences for the health of people or the environment more broadly. Say we make a genetic manipulation to uh, an animal, and that animal then, because of the genetic manipulation we've made, breeds ferociously and outcompetes other animals or conversely becomes susceptible to something which then wipes out its species or we make plants that do something in some way that then alters the balance of the environment by trading genes with plants they shouldn't trade them with and producing super weeds or something there are lots of ifs buts and maybes there's enormous amounts of potential on the other hand what we don't want to do though is to get it wrong and so while people appreciate and understand that there are benefits from all of this there are also needs from all of this there are also checks balances and safeguards that need to be absolutely carefully fulfilled 
Now, some jurisdictions are more restrictive than others. The European Union, for example, had a complete moratorium on doing this kind of thing. You you couldn't just couldn't do it. Whereas now the UK is outside the European Union jurisdiction, those experiments can be done, and there are white papers going through Parliament in the UK or already passed in Parliament to enable this sort of manipulation to begin to to happen again. So we we watch with interest to see how legislators approach this, but certainly it's a question of we know that this has a lot of potential, but we also know there are pitfalls. We also know we need to therefore be cautious and make sure we get it right. And we don't fully understand all of the technology yet or what the possible consequences could be. All that glitters isn't gold in this space. It's not as simple as tinkering with a car engine and saying, I'll put a bigger carburetor in because then it can get more fuel into the engine and it will go faster. There are other effects that you may not be aware of when you start using this technology at this stage and we need to find out what those possibilities are and make sure that we mitigate against any danger. Let's go to Peter in Cape Town. Go ahead for The Naked Scientist. Hello Dr Smith. Dr Smith, um, we see submersibles going down to very deep uh, descents into the ocean and they are in extremely strongly built spheres uh, to stop it being crushed. Yet they're finding fish down there and jellyfish that are swimming quite freely under massive pressures. I don't understand why they don't just get totally crushed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good point, isn't it? And you're right. You've got these, uh, in most cases, unmanned submersibles, which are descending to depths of seven kilometres down. In some cases, there are manned submersibles that go down. You can see these extraordinary pictures and people will, will go down there. And you're right, they're a spherical shape. And the reason they use a sphere is because whichever point you press on a sphere, the load is transmitted equally in all directions. And therefore, you can balance or spread the load with no focal point where the pressure builds up or at least it minimises the points at which the pressure can build up, and therefore you have lots of inherent strength and a lower likelihood of failure. The reason that you have to use such thick materials and so on is because there are, if you want to send people down there or equipment down there that's going to be pressure sensitive, you have to make sure that the pressure inside the object is the same as it is at the surface, whereas the pressure outside is huge. So that means the work has got to be done by the material to stop the inside becoming smaller in volume because you'll get an increase in pressure if the thing is squashed because pressure goes up as the volume falls but the amount of gas stays the same. So if the volume inside the submersible doesn't change, the pressure must be the same. That's not the same for the fish outside though. The fish outside are swimming around in those sorts of pressures but because they've evolved to live there, they are adapted to be in those sorts of pressures. Were you to bring them from the sea floor to the surface, they would have the same problem, but in reverse, that we get when we go down there. They would have too little pressure, and they would, they would blow up, and rather than us implode when we're down there, they would blow up and they wouldn't be viable either. These animals have in their tissues special proteins which are capable of helping their proteins and tissues stay in the right shape and work the right way under those sorts of pressures. And this means that when water tries to push molecules together or when they try and um, in, when, when there are various chemical interactions going on, that things don't get deformed by these intense pressures. So these, these animals have evolved various mechanisms that enable them to survive under those conditions. Were you to take them away from those conditions, they would not survive.
uh, two questions and we are running out of time. So I'm going to throw them at you, uh, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Somebody speculating about the scale, the size of the air conditioners needed, needed to power air conditioning for something as big as a stadium in Qatar. Uh, and will it be able to keep the players cool? That's the one question. The second one from Zuki sounds as follows. What is it in honey that makes it not rot? Is it something that it has that other foods don't have? Or is it something that it doesn't have that other foods do have? I think uh, those are the last two questions, Dr. Chris Smith. Well, the honey one first. What honey has, apart from various proteins and other things that the bees add to the honey when they make it, is a very high concentration. It's a really super saturated solution of sugar, glucose, fructose, and as a result, it's too strong or too concentrated a solution for microorganisms to survive in a viable, productive active state that's not to say that you can't get spores which are inert forms of microbes embedded in honey and there have been some cases where people have have recovered certain infectious entities from honey in in spore form but the the concentration the intensely strong solution that is honey protects it from microbial degradation On the air conditioner question, very interesting one, and I don't know the answer because you'd have to sit down and think about this, but a good analogy is to say, well, how does South African gold mines do this? Because five kilometres down, which some of them are in the goldfields near Joburg, I've been down some of them, then you know that the rocks down there are 60 plus degrees Celsius, and how they do it is by having two independent power supplies coming in just in case one were to fail, you have a machine that's capable in in one mine they told me they could make with their machine 16,000 tonnes of ice cubes in a day if they wanted to make ice cubes but they make very very cold water the reason for making very very cold water is that water has a really high specific heat capacity in other words you have to either add or remove an enormous amount of energy from a certain weight of water to make it change by just one degree c so by making cold water you have a really dense really compact way of moving cold or hot around you pump that water at high speed down the mine and run that through your air conditioning system which then helps to remove the the heat from the ambient air producing cooler environment for miners to work in this costs an arm and a leg because the electricity supplies to run those machines are getting through massive amounts of electricity I don't know what the analogous situation would be in, in Qatar, but the temperatures are not that dissimilar to some of the mine shafts in South Africa. And given that there are about 5,000 people working in just one mine in some cases, then you could do some calculations and work out that it would be a very, very hefty price premium on the price of a ticket to go and watch a match. Uh, we're going to have to rest it there. Thank you very much, Dr. Chris Smith, uh, the Naked Scientist. Ausgeglichene, preiswerte und leckere Mahlzeiten. Das lässt sich nicht mit dem Lifestyle eines wahren Gamers kombinieren? Doch, und zwar mit HelloFresh. Wähle aus vielen leckeren Rezepten und lasse dir dafür die regionalen und qualitativen Zutaten direkt in deiner HelloFresh-Box liefern. Jetzt nur noch schnell kochen und schon kannst du deine Mahlzeit mit zum Zocken auf die Couch nehmen. Spare jetzt bis zu 100 Euro auf deine ersten vier HelloFresh-Boxen mit dem Code FSGAME100.